was, when you're a pastor, you're always worried about your kids, right? And I hear the screaming when I was young. I go, oh, man, I hope that's not my kid. Oh, yeah, that's my kid. I can hear. I'm sitting there, and I hear screaming. I go, I recognize that scream. That's my granddaughter. <laughs> I go, oh, wow, there it is again. It is good to be here. Bit of an experiment this morning. I have reached a milestone myself. I turned 50 this year. I've never preached at the age of 50 yet. I'm not sure if I'll be shorter or longer. This is the experiment. I want to begin by saying a phrase to you, and I want you to see if you can identify who said it. I'll start out fairly easy. So first, I have a dream. Who was it? All right. Four score and seven years ago. All right. All right. Going to get a little harder now. You miss 100% of the shots you never take. No. Wayne Gretzky. Yes. All right. Here's another one. You must be the change you want to see in the world. Gandhi. And here's one more. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Winston Churchill. <laughs> In the political realm, not bad now. I, I look at the power of words and I go, isn't it absolutely amazing how you can take an accumulation of letters and words, you splice them together, you put them in the right order, in the right context, and suddenly you can have this incredible, powerful statement. We probably can all recount somewhat of a historical moment in the past, whether it was in a movie or in actual history, where someone rallies the team, someone comes forward and gets the nation going, motivates, whether it's a political leader, or a coach, or some passionate individual. But the power of words is amazing. The power to motivate or to crush to encourage or simply to tear down, to inspire or to demoralize. All about how you and I choose to arrange letters and words within a certain framework. You know, I saw a great example of this not too long ago on YouTube, and the video begins, and I, I wanted to show the video, but too much work, but the video begins with this blind man sitting on the street. He simply has a cardboard sign beside him that reads, I'm blind, please give. So as the video continues, what you see happening is the odd person comes by, drops some change in. You know, the, most of them walk by, but some take notice. But at one point, there's this business lady who, who seems to apparently going to walk right by, but she stops, she looks back, she looks at the sign, she comes back, ponders a moment, picks up the cardboard sign that says, I'm blind, turns it over, and begins to write something down. As she's doing this, the blind guy, you know, obviously the senses are awake in other ways, and so maybe smells her perfume, but he reaches out, he feels the type of shoes she's wearing, wondering what this delay is, not hearing money being dropped, and suddenly she puts the sign down and she walks away. And what happens following that is really quite incredible. Suddenly, more people stop, more people take notice, more money is being donated at a much quicker pace. Well, eventually, a little longer into this scene, the lady returns and stops. Maybe it was the perfume, but again, he reaches out. He recognizes it's her. He feels the response, and he simply says, Ma'am, what did you write? 
And she responds, well, I said the same thing as you, but in a different way. And so as she walks away, the camera pans from her to the blind man to the sign, which read, it's a beautiful day and I can't see it. It's a beautiful day and I can't see it. From the very beginning of time, words were uttered. The ability to communicate has played such an important role in our existence as human beings. I'm going off track on my notes here. I told the guy up there, I will do that eventually. Don't panic. I will come back to this place. But I was thinking about this morning, the power of words. You know, last Christmas, someone said something about saying something positive when they were going around the Christmas thing. What I had done, and I just thought of it one day, I said, you know what, I got these kids of mine, and now grandkids, and my wife, and I said, I'm just, I'm just going to write something really positive about each and every one of them. And then I said, well, I'll get a little fancy. I went to the printer. I had them printed on nice lettering, laminate, and then bring it out. So we gave our gifts and everything like that. And then at the end, I said, listen, I got one more gift for each and every one of you. I says, it's just my words for you. And in each one of those cases, I just brought out the strengths of each of the individuals. What I saw was so powerful in their lives. And it was just one of those things, it was one of those God moments that God just said, you know what, we don't do it enough. And I only thought of that because recently, you know how fast gifts go, you know, and they're destroyed or lost or kids get tired of them. Well, just in the last two weeks, in the various times I went to two of my kids who were still at home in their rooms, there was that laminate word sitting in a prominent place on the couch where they always sit or watch TV or right by the bed. And I said, that we don't understand the strength and the power in words. Whether within our own thoughts, spoken or written, words have the power to transform the world we live in. Love, laughter, heroism, friendship. Virtually every known emotion that we ever experience as human beings can be inspired by words. Unfortunately, so can fear and anger and hatred. They also can be invoked by words. You want an example of just how powerful a word is? We've all seen it. Wow! Instant, I'm going in. Well, this morning, I want to share with you some words that I believe are some of the most important words ever spoken. Words that should inspire, that should encourage, that should motivate, that should challenge each and every one of us to live life to its complete fullest. Words that if we truly received, not just sang about, words that if we really understood, but more importantly, words that if we truly lived by, I believe would fulfill the very essence of who you and I were created to be as human beings. In fact, I will go as far as to say that as our world continues to struggle, as already mentioned by Mark, with the atrocities that continue to take place on a daily basis, like what recently happened in the U.S. with the elementary school, and countless others, I, I never order the newspaper, but I pick it up when I go to Home Depot, they give it free if you buy something, so I take one. And so I read it periodically, and there again, story after story, and I looked at these words and the countless others that happened of these atrocities, and I go, you know what? It is the, the misuse, the abuse, or the plain deliberate choice not to live by these words that I'm about to share with you that I believe that are at the very foundation of all of the issues that we continue to struggle with as a humanity. 
Because sadly, during these atrocities and these difficult times, and some of you shared about your own lives, the only word that comes to mind is the word why. Why does such evil exist? Why do the innocent have to suffer? Why does God allow such atrocities? And thus there's a journey of discovery pursued in our search for the answer to that one word. Why? You know, I'm, I travel a lot. I spent most of the year either in Saskatoon or Cold Lake. In fact, my 50th was in Boston Pizza having a little celebration by myself. Hey, 50 years old. Who would have thought? Cold Lake. I did have my buddy there. He's from Quebec. He cheered me on. We celebrated. I had my little apple toddler. That was good. But I'm still going, it is unbelievable. As I'm driving on all these trips, I'm listening to a serious radio, so I listen to a lot of American channels, and I hear them grapple with this word, why? In light of what happened in elementary school. And suddenly I realize, you know, there are all these rabbit trails that everyone begins to go on trying to figure out why. Because we want to know, first we want to know what happened, but then we, more importantly, we want to know why. Why could this happen? And I began to have these thoughts for messages, and I pull out my phone. I know it was illegal. I'm sorry, but I quickly put the recorder, and I said, thought, and I quickly say something, and I put it away. That's how I, I'm getting older. That's how I keep track of these things. But I, I, I listen to them, and all of a sudden they're talking about, well, you know, he came from a broken home, and so suddenly they bring in a family therapist, and, and people who are professionals in this area begin to dissect that rabbit trail. And some say, well, okay, he, he broke up in a broken home, but he was also considered a loner. Possibly he was bullied, and so then goes a rabbit trail, trying to understand what happened. And other professionals are brought in. Then we are told, but wait, 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 he had some form of autism maybe. Maybe it was the medication, so they bring in the doctors. Could it have been the violence that just the culture itself created? We know he was a gamer. That's where I elbowed my son who traveled with me one time. Avid gamer, violent game. So off goes this rabbit trail. That's why what happened. And then all of a sudden say, yeah, but it was the guns. Registered guns, legal guns, but guns. And the whole gun debate took off. And I'm listening to everyone trying to figure out why this could happen. And I looked at it and I said, you know why this could happen? I'll tell you why. We haven't come back to the foundational basis of the two words I'm about to share with you. Why begins our journey of discovery, a road to truth, we assume when we ask that question. But I want to introduce you to two words that have to precede that question. In fact, I would suggest that if we truly, again, understood these two words and the implications of them for our lives, the question of why would not be nearly as difficult to understand. Two words comprised of only five letters. I love how God uses truth and the simplicity of truth, but the profoundness of that simplicity. Two words, two of the most powerful words found in all of creation, as recorded, I find, in the Scriptures. Two words that define, really, the Christmas message and creation itself. Two words, five letters, assembled in the right order, that capture the motivation why I should get up in the morning. That if I were to live out this message of these two words, I will have succeeded in life and I could stand before God one day and he might say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Two words. Why do I believe they're so important? Well, first, God said them. That brings it right up there. He's the author as recorded in Genesis 1.26. Two simple but absolutely profound words. Let us. That's it. Let us. Now, the context of that verse continues on and says, let us make man in our image. 
I want to go back to those two words where God declared, let us. Do you realize the theology that is wrapped up in these two words? Think about it. Before we were even a thought as human beings, God as Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, let us create. And create they did. And a pattern was begun. A model was revealed. A foundation and a pivotal truth was established in that act. A truth that would reverberate and echo throughout all of human history. A truth that would be the driving force between, behind how I would even or should measure my success as a human being. And a truth and when followed would mirror the very essence and character of God himself. Shortly after that, we find in Genesis 2.18, God says this, The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. You see, alone was not comparable to us. Alone really didn't capture the image of God. And God himself recognizes alone was not simply just not good. You see, it's the very existence of our creator, God. And we realize God is in the context of relationship. There is a relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, as, as one of these created human beings with a finite mind, I am going to have to be satisfied and comfortable in the belief that I may never fully grasp or understand, at least on this side of the grave, this concept of three in one. I'm okay with that. And as already shared, God himself said in Isaiah, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts, guess what? They're higher than your thoughts. In other words, I'm God, you're not. What did God tell Job? Uh, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations? Excuse me, were you there when I marked off its dimensions, creations? No, 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 here's a hint. You weren't. I was. But what we do know from the scriptures, what God has Revealed to us what he has shown us. And what becomes abundantly clear throughout the scripture is the role of us in the Trinity. The existence of a love relationship between God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God as we know him exists in community. And now God at this pivotal time back in Genesis says at this time I am going to create a project if you will. A being that is modeled after him. A reflection in part of his existence and the goal of let us make man in our image is fulfilled in the creation of humanity. And so we have some of that same DNA pulsing through us, especially concerning this whole aspect of community. As the phrase go, it's in our blood. It's a truth that continues throughout the annals of time. You can't read the Bible without this reality confronting you on every single page. God's revelation to mankind is mirrored with truths that are driven by who God is, who us is. Now, the best picture of God's revelation, as we are told, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. The God-man, the king, the creator, taking on the form of the created. And as we observe and watch and read through the scripture, as he walks on this planet, what does he do? He sets an example. 
for our existence, a pattern. He models life. He gathers around himself companions and friends and followers and disciples and relationships suddenly are a priority to Jesus. And therefore words are used like encourage one another, build up one another, serve one another, love one another. Repeatedly used in the framework of what Jesus Christ said is this new kingdom existence that has now been brought to us. All of them are words of relationship. And so suddenly we're kind of told our life in this world, in this existence, was not about the accumulation of goods. It wasn't about simply status or titles arriving to some point that's recognized by everyone around us. No, no, it all came back to relationships. And by the way, and the work that it would take to maintain these and emphasize these over the conflicting truths that would vie for our time and our energy as we exist on this planet, that would race after our emotions, things like getting the job done, truths that would just lead us away from who God is and what he intended. In fact, at one point, one of the disciples, Philip, comes to Jesus in John 14, 8. He still hasn't quite grasped it. He says, Lord, you know, just show us the Father, and guess what? That will be enough for us. Just give us a glimpse of God. Just, just show us. And I'm sure Jesus is getting a little frustrated. They still didn't get it. They still lost sight of the connection between the Godhead and what was in the Trinity and its implications for humanity, what was being offered to humanity. They were missing the point, so Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father? That the Father is in me? See, Philip knew about Christ. He was right there, obviously. But Jesus says, you know of me, but you don't know me. I'm expecting more. And that's why he asks, Philip, don't you know me? He didn't grasp the depth of us, the Trinity, and how us stepped into our world and how the principles of community and love and relationship as found in the Trinity were now extended to the created from the Creator. And now we were given this unique opportunity as we exist on this earth in the context of relationship with the Trinity and with others. And they lost sight that like in any good relationship, there exists a two-way expectation. When you have an existence between two entities that meet and come together, the purpose of developing, growing, the bond, going deeper. You know, I know my wife loves me, but if I never reciprocated that love, if I never responded positively to that love, I'm pretty sure it'd be a short-term experience. And so God, who initiated this all in creation, this relationship with us anticipates a response from mankind. A, a response. And it's a huge difference and ex expectation that we find as we turn through the scriptures that there is something deeper than simply having knowledge of God and yet not knowing God. And like Philip, we are given an opportunity to have a deeper relationship with God. Again, it's, it's one thing to know my wife exists. But if I never go further with that knowledge, if I never pursue the benefits of such a relationship, well, the guarantee is a failure. It's a fast track to loneliness. A lot of a negative, a negative emotions is going to happen. 
And as my wife would wait for my response, God is simply waiting. And we read in Psalms 53, 2, God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Scriptures are clear. God pursues us but anticipates a response. And then we're told, but those who choose to respond to God in a positive direction are suddenly part of something miraculous. A renewed relationship, a restored relationship. One that was severed that now is repaired. One that at the crux of this renewed relationship is the very truth, the foundational principle that God is with us. And so Jesus continues in his response to Philip and he states quite clearly in John 14, 15 to 20, the reality of the extent of this relationship. When you followed through with it, when you took it to its end, allow me to read it to you because it captured everything I just said. Jesus says to him, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world, they can't accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father. You are in me. I am in you. Are you hearing the theology of us? Relationship. It is God. It is hardwired into our very existence. It is the foundation upon which I believe everything else is built. Let us. And if you miss this, if you're not about this, my friends, well, you've missed the boat. Why do you think Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5, what does he talk about? You therefore are what? Ambassadors of Christ. What's the role of an ambassador of Christ? What's your job to be all about? The reconciliation of mankind. What is at the heart of reconciliation? Relationships. Do you think God is serious about this? Do you think he might have a few emotions attached to this guiding principle? What do we read in James 4, 5? Or do you think scriptures say without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? I love that. Envies intensely. You know, I used to tell my kids, you know what, when I stop getting emotional and loud and angry with you, if I stop, then be concerned. Why? Because if my emotions are no longer attached, I'm probably no longer attached. This whole principle has often been referred to as the dark side of God's love, facing the wrath of God's love. Again, someone tries making a move on my wife, you're going to face my wrath. As limited as it is, it's my wrath because of my love for her. And we look at this scripture, and God exhibits a jealous love. Why use the word envy and intensely? Because God has some strong feelings concerning our relationship with him, especially in light of everything else that is pulling our love away from him. And we all know that anytime you're involved with relationships, they, they, they have a way of bringing out these emotions in us, don't they? You can't have a good relationship with some emotions attached one way or the other. I love how the late Stan Grants puts it. Let me read this quote to you. 
God's ultimate desire is to create from all nations a reconciled people living within a renewed creation, enjoying the presence of a triune God. This biblical vision of community is the goal of history. In the final analysis, therefore, we know that we have encountered God in that we have been brought to share in community. That is, as we enjoy fellowship with God and then we participate in the people of faith. How important, how vital is community? Friends, your life together with other believers stands as the best confirmation that you know God. Because you get it. Simply put, it's the power of us. Us as in you and God. Us as in you and me. That's why verses like Matthew 18, 20, you know, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with you. Relationship. It doesn't work when you're alone. So here's the thought in all of this. If this is so fundamentally important to God, if creation was built upon this, if it reflected God's very character and essence, and relationships are so vital, how would those people around you who know you, how would they define your relationships? If, if I was to say, Carol, use some descriptive words to describe relationships in my life, right now, what would those words be? Might they be tension-filled, stressed, argumentative, conflictive, negative? Or words like friendly, uplifting, encouraging, positive, even joyful? Do you realize that the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing or joyful, you know, in, in some form, at least 350 times in the scriptures, and when you study these passages, these scripture passages, what becomes abundantly clear is that as the Bible sees it, which I would assume then means as God sees it, the natural condition of a person who is in relationship with God is joy. From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, in the good times and even in the context of the bad times and the difficult times, those who walk closely with God and have that depth of relationship should experience this life-transforming joy. Yes, joy even in the context of pain and suffering, which is really difficult for a lot of people to grasp. Joy, even in the context of man's rebellious state, my natural tendency not to be joyful, especially when I follow slow drivers. It's not there. Joy, even in the context of community called church. Why? Because ultimately in the context of our existence, this is so important. Why? Because we are granted such a short time on this planet. Again, in comparison to eternity, we are granted such a short time. Scriptures, you know, describe it as the vapor mist. Saw it, there, gone. And in the context of the anticipated joy that lies ahead for us for all of eternity, in that other realm, God convicts me. He says, how dare, Glenn, we abuse or refuse to live out how God created you? in the context of relationship with others. 
in the context of joy. He's not minimizing the pain we walk through, by the way. He's not saying turn a blind eye and, and ignore it. But really, in the context of what lies ahead for us, C.S. Lewis said this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you think that God has more joy in store for us than we ever imagined? We struggle with this concept. We'll sing about it. I'll preach about it, but we struggle with this concept. Because I know for myself how much easier it is for me to be angry at people than happy. It's real easy to get angry. I'm sorry, but it, it, it's, I keep saying it's got to be an age thing. It has to be because I just can't tolerate this no more. And I become angry. It is easier to be a loner and hold my own little self-pity parties. And in the process, avoid people because we know how labor-intensive people are. It's hard work. I'll be very, very honest with you. There have been so many times that I have, you know, my wife works at Brentview Baptist. She just resigned. had been there three years. So I have been out of the ministry, but I'm still attached. I still hear what's going on. I still hear what happens. And I sit there going, honey, I'd go back if it wasn't for the people. I just don't know if I have the energy and strength to hassle with some of the things we hassle about. I'd be way more grumpier or sterner or something. I don't know. I said, I don't know. I, I think I'd rather spend more time on my knees. And, and I'm sorry, sadly to say, not praying, doing flooring, than going back. It honestly keeps me, because it's hard work. We all know it. It's hard work with the person right beside you. Never mind all those others. And we understand. And do I really want to introduce myself to those issues? See, and even our theology then becomes confused when, when we don't grasp this principle, when we don't understand it, and, and we ignore the foundational guiding principle of us and, and relationships. And so we, we will look at our lives and what's happening to our lives, and we will confuse things like material advantage or simply positive experiences with a temporary false joy. If only this happens, then I'd be happy. If only I could get over this. If only my finances would come through. If only they wouldn't die. If only, and we think we say, that would make me happy. And we assume by the way we live and the weight that we put on this experience in this time frame. We really throw out what awaits us. We really don't buy it. I don't. Because I put so much emphasis on my experience here. I forget about the hereafter. And I will quickly toss you out the window in light of my satisfaction. Sadly, they say we're very selfish human beings. That's why Jesus, the one time when the lawyer comes and he's trying to go deep with Jesus and talk about the other realm and spiritual existence and eternity, Jesus kind of just pulls them back and says, whoa, whoa, let's just get back to the basics. Let's get back to the depth of what this is all about, a relationship. And so he says, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Get it? This is it. 
Forget everything else. Live on this. And that's why there's a one four-letter word used in this context time after time again. The truth about us, the Trinity, the force, the driving force behind its success and God's plan. Love. Love. Love the Lord your God. Complete devotion. 110%, nothing else will do. And by the way, not just God, but love your neighbor the same way. Why was love so important? Because relationships are so important. You can't have one without the other. It's pretty depressing. Listen how important this was. Again, understand the depth of why this was so important. God, he tries to describe. Listen to how John describes God. Have you ever done that? I had people say, well, who's God? What is God? You know, especially for someone who's never grown up with God outside of a swear word. Trying to describe to them God. How do you do that? What do you say? What, what all has to be involved? How does it adequately capture who God is? John did it. God is love. God is love, period. In fact, how vital is our understanding of this concept? The beginning of that very same verse reads this. Whoever does not love does not know God. That's some pretty harsh words. If you can't love, then you really don't know God. You miss this. You've really, really missed the boat. Need more proof? Go on to verse 11. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. That's the complete picture. That's the plan. That's the goal. That's the purpose. God, love of God, love of others. It's the power of Trinity. You see, in the Trinity, we discover that they give of themselves for each other. In fact, the word love, agape, means giving of oneself for the sake of another. Jesus spoke about this. What did he say? The good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. In John 10, 11, he also said, you know what? Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Where do you hear people laying down their lives these days in a warped theology where they think they're bringing people into the kingdom of God by blowing themselves up. We see people give of their lives when they seek the adrenaline rush and they do high-risk adventure. But seldom do you hear about people giving of their lives out of simply love. It's the ultimate relationship test, going the distance, not just for a family member, the scripture says, not just for a friend, but even for a complete stranger, someone who may believe completely different than you. See, that's the power of us lived out. These are the expectations that God lays out for us. That is the bar being raised in the kingdom of God. And so therefore, relational steps were required. It's why Jesus, from time to time, had to realign his disciples' attitudes. Relationship adjustments. And we're told on more than one occasion, they got into conflicting truths, vying for their energy and their strength. Who is the greatest among us? Who might be at the right hand of God when we finally get to the kingdom of heaven? They totally missed the boat again. And it was after one of those episodes that finally Jesus again, it is a heated debate, he sits them down. We read in John 13, Jesus knew that the Father had put things all under his power. Jesus knew who he was. He was God. He was the Trinity. And there's no doubt about his authority and his power, but despite this, despite his position, we read in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Did you catch that? 
the full extent of his love. I've been part of Focus 3 on and off since Days in Life Spring. It's that program conference offers for character development, understanding your story, living in community, being mentored. It's, it's, it's really good. I don't lead a group anymore, but every year they come and ask me to do the boot camp, which is out at some camp at Sundry, and the last year we switched to Camp Caroline, where I take the group after they've been together for a year in their individual churches, experiencing community as it should be, telling their stories, and I challenge them one final time. I hate to say it, but by the, the beginning or midweek, half the people hate me. But hopefully by the end they understand why. Because I challenge these people in some of the most humbling moments I've ever had. I said, Do you, are, are you really serious about community? Are you real serious about what God's doing in your life and what he wants you and how he wired you? Are you willing to be serious enough to even speak truth to each other? Honest truth. See, that started when I was pastoring Lifespring and I brought our first group there. And we just sat around a campfire and I simply asked them, guys, are there things that I do in my life that hinder my ability to minister for the kingdom of God. I give you permission to tell me. Because I don't want to do that anymore. And guess what? <laughs> they did. <laughs> it's easy to say. It's hard, a little harder to take. And that became a foundational principle that I built into each and every camp. Can we be honest with each other after a year of this intense community? Can we speak truth into each other's lives? And then, at the very end of the whole camp, I do something that typically we don't do a lot in the Baptist church. We had a dance. No, I didn't have a dance. Just wanted to see you, right? I did a foot washing. I do it every year. Most of the time, they don't know. And we have our final session, and everyone's there. Every time we have an activity, we have little meetings and people express their anger or frustration and that because it's competitive-based. You know, people are. And then I'm driving them and I'm that, and they're all angry. I've had a pastor's wife hit me. I gave her permission and she followed through with it. So we got a few emotions going. But at the very end, after the challenge, I gathered them together. And I said, now Jesus, he frustrated so many times with people because they just didn't we live, we live, we pursue, we do, we do church, but we really don't know God and what he wants. And so we become so selfish. And I said, Jesus physically, visually challenged his disciples. This is not about you. It's not about you. It's about God's plan and purpose and people's lives are at stake. Are you really seriously going to argue, but who sits at my right hand? Have you not seen nothing that happened in the last three years? Oh, takes it off. Washes their feet. There is something about washing feet. Now, granted, our feet are way cleaner than they would have been in Jesus' day. But you go down, you unlace the shoes, and you simply say, I want to serve you. I want to love you in this manner. I want to show people it's not about me. People, if you would see the stories that I've seen take place, I just leave it open. The, the pride is just tossed out the window. Humility is just thrown away. 
And people, when they allow the Holy Spirit to work, suddenly begin. And I, I see things happen. We, we, we basically have to go into the middle of the night half the time because people can't stop. They get in the whole thing of just, this is not about me. It's about loving and serving others through the love of God. Man, if we could live that way. Apostle Paul wrote, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. See, when God resides in us, when the Trinity visits us, He brings us to share in, in the love of a son, Jesus, and His Father, that He enjoys with His Father. Love describes God's nature throughout all of eternity. It characterizes the manner in which God responds to all existence, to the universe. Again, the late Stanley Grintz writes, Indeed, the God who is love naturally acts toward the world in accordance with the eternal divine essence, which is love. With profound theological insight, therefore John bursts forth, For God so loved the world he gave. It's the fabric of who God is. It's the very essence of how he works, how he thinks, how he responds to us. And we as his children, his creation, are to have that same DNA flowing through us. And so this truth then helps us understand why he would go as far as to hang on the cross for us. It should be foundational from the moment we wake up. For every decision we ever make in any day. And my question is very simple, and I close with it. Does it or have we missed the boat? Does this truth truly penetrate who we are and our relationships, or have we missed the boat? How you and I choose to live reflects whether I buy into this reality or it's just a nice thing to sing about. Whether this truth rings true or hollow, whether I really know God or I just know about God whether we grasp the concept that God initiated or is God still scanning from the heavens the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek me. And so the disciple John understood and that's why he records in 1 John 4, 17, love is made complete among us. Community. What a gift do we demonstrate the divine presence of God or am I going to choose to live my life? Let me close in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much. Uh, you know, we talk about the miracle of Christmas. We talk about the birth and we celebrate all that surrounded that event and, 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 and as we look back in history, we know what unfolded. And God, it, it, I know from my life, it's just, you hear it so often. You sing about it so often. You talk about it, you pray about it, but it just becomes so easy not to live it anymore. It becomes so easy just to get angry and upset. And I think we do that because we've lost sight of who you are. We've lost sight of the purpose. We've become selfish and everything becomes a perspective through our lenses and not yours. And so, God, I just, my 
prayer for each and every one of us as we, as we walk through life, as we face the difficult things that I know you care about, and not that you can't heal or do a work through us, but that God, in light of everything we experience here, I can still hang on to the peace that passes all understanding, not because I just want to be ignorant of what's happening, but because I have the love of a Father that exists in me that offers me complete joy even in the midst of complete suffering. We can hear people in the past who sing as they're being burnt at the stake, and we, we, we ponder. We say, how is that possible? That's someone who grasped the love of God and what awaited them. So God, as we face life, as we can, can we please get our eyes off ourselves for a moment and look at our neighbors and our, our community around us, our community at work, and can we live in light of this principle that drives everything we should be about and learn to love as you love, learn to give as you give, learn to serve as you serve, even those who disagree with us, even those who fight against us. That's the power of God. That's the power of us. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.